The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We can't have these conversations or this analysis in a vacuum where we're not also reckoning with a lot of the problematic ways law enforcement has engaged with communities of color, and particularly with the Black community. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 7th, 2022. It was a scary week for historically Black colleges and universities, 17 of which received bomb threats that caused disruptions, building closures, and class cancellations. The FBI is investigating. We don't know a heck of a lot about what happened, but we thought we would go over what we do know. Joining me in the virtual jungle studio this week were Andy McCabe, former deputy director of the FBI, who ran his share of counterterrorism investigations, and Yasmin Kader, a deputy legal director at the ACLU and the director of the Trone Center for Justice and Equality. We talked about what we know about the investigation, how these investigations take place, and the tensions they involve between the FBI and communities of color. We talked about the role of HBCUs and why people may be targeting them. We talked about whether the FBI is well-positioned to investigate hate crimes and what it needs to do to better position itself for this mission. We even talked about January 6th and what the FBI's preparedness for that event says about its preparedness now. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 7th, The Bomb Threats at HBCUs. Yasmin, get us started here. Uh, What do we know about this uh, set of threats and what don't we know at this point? Well, importantly, I think what we do know is that on Monday there were six, over a dozen on Tuesday, and these threats were targeted and specifically at historically Black colleges and university on what happened to be the first day of Black History Month. It prompted these institutions to lock down or evacuate their campuses and classes moved to online, certainly at a time when we have already experienced this disruption from the pandemic of having to move online. 
so that we know what what we don't know is who where why we just don't have that information right now so i think that that would be the thumbnail sketch i could give andy uh this comes at a time of just a few days after the attorney general gave a speech in which he said that one of his major democracy protection priorities was dealing with the rise in threats cases now this is he talked about threats to public officials threats to flight crews but this is a different kind of threat when the attorney general says he's taking threats very seriously what happens at the fbi <laughs> well if the uh general public isn't listening as closely as we would like to what the attorney general says, I can assure you that the FBI and particularly FBI leadership listens very closely to the things that uh, the AG says publicly. So, you know, although I have to say, Ben, in this situation, threats to academic institutions or religious institutions or really anyone or anything are, have always been taken very seriously by the FBI, and especially something like this that really kind of steps outside that typical kind of background noise of politically motivated aggression that we've been dealing with for the last couple of years, which I think is part of what the attorney general was referring to, that we we're going to start taking what looked initially maybe like overheated political speech that and is now turned into threats of violence. We're going to take that seriously. What you're seeing with the threats to the HBCUs is very similar to the waves of bomb threats and threats of violence that have been called in over the years to like the Jewish community and Jewish community centers and synagogues and places like that. And these have always been something that the Bureau has taken very seriously. Yeah, so that's an interesting comparison. And I'm interested, Yasmin, for your thoughts on that. Uh, this wave of threats came roughly at the same time as a synagogue attack with a with a hostage situation, a vandalism of a synagogue, and somebody drawing swastikas all over the columns at Union Station in Washington. To what extent are those are you know somebody calling in bomb threats to 17 HBCUs should we see that as a sort of analogous situation and to what extent is there something you know unique or different about this kind of uh, threat of violence you know i'm very wary to to make links and connections when we just don't have enough information i think that that has frankly been a been a downfall of of ours and I talk collectively as ours as the public of of making connections and making links and coming to conclusions as to sources and we don't have enough information but what we do know what we do know is that we have had a, a rise in different types of hateful rhetoric in recent history as we talked about earlier the whole issue of just an overheated political discourse that can turn over into violence. And we cannot ever discount how that can connect to, to a temperature that we have in the country. But in terms of how is this different, I think that, you know, one thing to just keep in mind is just the, the unique space that HBCUs play in our, in our society and what they represent. It's, it's, not a place of worship. 
it, it is very different. It is a, it is a, these are universities, they're academic institutions, and they have had, you know, long histories of bipartisan support, even in their origin, frankly. Um, they have, from the very beginning of their development after the Freedmen's Bureaus and throughout history, you know, strong bipartisan support, at least in concept, certainly not in terms of the type of funding that they deserve, but at least in concept, they have had bipartisan support. They are robust, you know, centers of thought. They have, you know, these just very diverse, robust students from all over the world. The entire uh, African diaspora will be represented at different HBCUs, meaning you will have students from Ghana and you will have students from Norway and from Jamaica and and from London all in the same place. So it's really a very international perspective often that's represented. And you also have diversity of thought. As we all know, Black people are not a monolith. And even though there are certainly, you know, different experiences and histories, you know, there is a robust spectrum of thought that is represented at these institutions. So I think that that's part of what really sets them apart when you're looking at just the type of academic setting and what is what occurs in a healthy academic setting and how that's unique from some of these other targets. Andy, a bomb threat, much less 17 bomb threats, is not the same thing as a bomb going off, but it is. it has an awful lot in common with it in terms of what the person who uh, is responsible for it did. You were the lead in the Boston Marathon bombing investigation. And so I'm just interested in your thoughts from, from when the FBI sees 17 HBCUs that are effectively not shut down, but classes are canceled or, or moved online, buildings are shut down, uh, you don't have the physical evidence that you have when there's actually a detonation. Thank God. So, what's the wh- what's the what's the investigative strategy that gets you in a situation like this quickly to where colleges can return to normal and do so without fear? Yeah. So it's a really unique and challenging situation, and of course, the FBI takes these threats very seriously and conveys any information that we have about them to the targeted institutions. And you have to kind of go with, you have to begin with the assumption that any one of these could end up as an actual attack. And so, you know, there's no, like, there's no dismissing anything as, oh, it's just a threat. So you have to kind of begin at a full alert status and respond appropriately. And once you get going, there's really two sides to an investigation like this, and they're inextricably kind of bound together. The first is the is I guess what I would characterize as the the tactical investigation. And you're absolutely right. There's not a lot of forensic evidence to work with here, but there is some evidence around the communication itself. Depending on how that threat is coming to the attention of the victims. That's really where, from a technical or tactical perspective, the Bureau focuses on trying to attribute that communication to an actor. That, that is tougher and tougher every day, right, with the, all the very effective tools that there are to kind of anonymize your presence on the internet, to encrypt communications, to kind of 
you know, hide your your identity in, in whatever way that communication is being transmitted. But that's that's the kind of tactical focus. The other side of that investigation is working very closely in partnership with the victim entities. You have to have a really productive, positive relationship with those entities. And, you know, I, I keep thinking back, it's not a perfect analogy, but my, my most recent experience was that wave of threats to the Jewish community centers in, in 2017, which I think ultimately totaled several thousand threats over a long period of time. It starts with having a good relationship to begin with. So your outreach efforts to those communities hopefully are already in place. You already know the people in charge. You know the folks in that community who are responsible for the security of those institutions. Hopefully you've already provided training to those places or, or helped them access training. Uh, and then you have to keep those lines of communication wide open because they are going to see and come across information that could be relevant to your investigation long before you will. And you need to keep them up to date on what you, you can't tell them everything that you're doing and every person that you're looking at, but you need to kind of uh, help them keep the temperature down as much as possible uh, in their community if you can. So it's really a partnership with not only the victim institutions, but the other folks that those institutions rely on for their security counseling. That might be, you know, security companies or private attorneys or, you know, other groups. It's, it's much more complicated than it seems at first look. If if I may, I think that 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 complexity is is something to really dig into because part of what we also have both at historically black colleges but at majority universities as well is some tension between security forces and law enforcement and their treatment of of people of color. And so you know, keeping that robust, healthy relationship is not always as easy as it sounds. And I think it really is part and parcel of what we're engaging at on the federal level and on the local levels when we talk about a reimagination of public safety, because we can't have these conversations or this analysis in a vacuum where we're not also reckoning with a lot of the problematic ways law enforcement has engaged with communities of color and particularly with the black community. So as we all know, that doesn't just mean that black universities can't also be in a situation where people are feeling unfairly targeted in the communities where those, those universities exist. So I just think that when we're talking about the importance of that relationship, and I think that's such a strong, important point that we also recognize the unique posture that we're in here and always, frankly, whenever we're talking about any diverse context, not just a historically black college, but a majority university as well, that we need to really be thoughtful about the complexity and depth and breadth of those relationships and why it's challenging. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's a great point. And it's one of the reasons why the Bureau and all law enforcement entities struggle more or less to have a productive relationship with different communities. And I think it also shows you this is kind of like the back end of the issue of inappropriate police interactions with certain communities. Like this is what happens when you undermine the trust in that relationship between law enforcement and the communities they serve. When the time comes that you need to work together to protect everyone 
if you don't have that trust and that background there for whatever reason, you know, it really hurts your ability to do the job. So I, I totally agree with you. Those things need to be fixed, need to be worked on, need to be kind of need the kind of attention and care those relationships do all the time, not just when you're getting a phone call that, you know, somebody's received a threat to their institution. Yeah, but at the time when the threat to the institution comes in is a rough moment to fix, you know, a relationship that's complicated for a lot of reasons, some of which, you know, may have roots in the historical behavior of the FBI and some of which may have roots in the contemporary behavior of local police departments. I'm curious from from both of your perspectives, are these interactions should we think of them as as opportunities to develop better relations between these institutions and and federal investigators or are these situations you know if you don't if you don't already have this relationship in a highly functional place this is a very fraught time to try to develop it like what happens when when you know the the the, the day these threats are called in and 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 these institutions have to do business with the bureau. Well, I, you know, we're a, non, a young nation, <laughs> so if we ever say it's too late, then I mean that's that's just not wise or 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 historically sound. We have to continue to evolve, and we have to do that though through a a real um, sophisticated and in depth analysis of how we got here, and to try to do do so in a way that is honest and true to history, both historical behavior of the FBI, current behavior of the FBI. It's not just a historical issue, but it's something that we, you know, it's not simply that, oh, the issues are that local law enforcement is the one now dealing with the reckoning, but the the FBI isn't. We know that even in the context of domestic terrorism, that there's a lot of critique about and concern of how the FBI and other law enforcement agencies have used domestic terrorism authority against communities of color. So relying on domestic terrorism to spy on Muslim communities, to target immigrant advocates, to even, you know, surveil Black Lives Matter organizers. So, you know, I don't think that this is just a historical behavioral analysis. I think it's a current one. That said, of course, we have to move forward. And we don't have the luxury of time to say, well, it's too late or this is not the moment to do it because we have a, a an emergency at hand. It has to happen part and parcel in a robust way and in a continuous way. I think that Ben, your comment is is accurate. Like it's not a it's not the opportune time to like knock on the door and introduce yourself. Like in the middle of a crisis or an ongoing investigation, the initiation of an investigation like this. And to be to be clear, you know, I would expect that every sack in every in every field office has an existing relationship with the local institutions uh whether they're HBCUs or other academic institutions is that is that a, a fair assumption or are there situations that developed this week where this was this knock on the door is the first time it's a sort of get to know you session well, I mean, let's hope it wasn't because that is certainly a big part of any SAC's job, their outreach to the community. It's their responsibility to know what institutions they have in their community, what different 
you know, kind of communities within their area of responsibility and to be making contact with those, with the leaders of those communities on a regular basis, bringing them into the office, going and seeing them, trying to kind of have the sort of dialogue that's going to help you get past some of these historic and current tensions. And so that way, when something like this happens, I mean, that's the whole point from the FBI side. So that when something happens, people feel comfortable picking up the phone and, and calling the bureau. But so hopefully that's the case here in, in this situation and that SACs and field offices have pre-existing relationships. If they don't, it's not the best time to start it. But, but like Yasmin says, you don't have a choice, really. We have to work these things. We have to start somewhere. It's not going to go away. It's not going to be the last time this will ever happen. So, you know, shame on you for not having done the work ahead of time. But like get in the game now and start serving your community, every aspect of it and trying to provide the service that we are supposed to provide to all Americans. I also, if I may, I, I think that the other perspective that we need to look at this from is the opportunity it gives us for a greater discussion, a, a policy discussion about our investments in HBCUs and why they're important. And also the opportunity that this gives to the individual students and in what they're going through. I, now, I'm a graduate of Howard University. And one thing that is, an, I think, an extraordinary advantage of, of attending an HBCU and going through something that is as challenging and difficult as this is that it really does show how central our experiences as students that are studying wherever our, our fields of studies were, mine was political science, but you're studying political science as it plays out in your community's life and your community's interactions with the world. And so it's a great vantage point from which to have that kind of an analysis. It, you know, I'm not trying to just be some kind of, you know, gloss of, you know, well, here's the good part, because it's it, it certainly isn't good. But there is, um, I think what this shows is the opportunity that the, this gives for us to look at the importance of these institutions, the challenges that the students are facing and that they, the entire institutions are facing with, under this threat, but also the extraordinary resilience. And that is something that we can really shine a light on. I promise you that those professors at Howard University right now are not telling their students to take a day off. I promise you, because I was one of those students during very different fraught political time, we didn't have that luxury. No. You figure out a way, you crack open your book, you get online, you go to your roommate's <laughs> internet if yours isn't working, and you get it done. Remembering that these are institutions that have educated African Americans and the descendants of, started with educating the descendants of slaves and people who, who endure that institution. There wasn't time to, to really have what some would say is as a non-tough love approach. Instead, it's a very tough love approach. And so there's a, a there's an incredible resiliency that comes out of an experience like this. And there is a vision and there is perspective that is just so valuable. So I think that this can highlight from a broader policy analysis the importance of these these institutions to our to our whole country. I mean, you know, as I noted before, HBCUs serve a diverse student body. There's people from all over the world, and there's also non-African-American students who have the privilege to be able to attend an institution like this and learn about all of these different topics and subjects 
through that vantage point. It's a real privilege. And so that's something that I want us to also think about when we're when we're having this highlight on the institutions from this lens, the opportunity that there is to have a lens on just how valuable and important they are, their their economic impact to our country and to the communities that they're they're situated in, the um, brain power that comes out of them. I'm not just talking about myself. <laughs> but the brain power that comes out, our vice president is a graduate of an HBCU, the job generation that comes from, from, the grad, from the graduates and the economies that they support, just the vitality of the preparation for the workforce that comes. And so I, I am, I'm hoping that we are considering that when we're thinking about all of the policy implications of this current crisis. So that is an extremely well taken point, and presumably, although i I don't want to I don't want to do too much speculation about motive here, but presumably, all of that is part of the reason for the target selection. That is, there's a lot of institutions that you can target in order to send a message, in order to intimidate people, in order to disincentivize participation in things like education or upward mobility. You select educational institutions that have historically played a major role in uplift of a particular community, presumably consciously or self-consciously, because you're trying to do those things. I'm curious, uh, you know, obviously your, your caution that, that we, what we don't know is a lot at this point there is a message being sent here, right? Again, back to what we don't know. Even if the message that's being sent is one that what we're looking at from a from a 30,000 foot view is that you have a certain sector of institutions that are being targeted, whatever the motives are of the individuals, it's not without meaning to, to be able to talk about just what you referenced, which is the disruption the potential distraction from studies, you know, the expenditure of increased security needs. And so I think that what I'm what I'm hoping for is that what we do is we circle, we come in a circle, we we link arms and we say, okay, not only are we not going to allow this threat and target and, and whatever intent there may be to disrupt this really important institution and an, an important opportunity to lift up um, this this community. We're not going to let that happen. We're going to look more broadly at what are the investments that we need to make to keep these institutions robust. And that's what I think when we look at the history of the formation of HBCUs, but the continued bipartisan support for their existence that's something that we can hold on to that could really be politically healing, particularly right now in these divided times. That's something that it seems that there's widespread agreement on. Now, there certainly isn't widespread agreement on the amount of money that needs to go. This is something that came up with the Build Back Better agenda in that, you know, how much should it be 10 billion or should it be the original 45 billion that's, that, that was sought? I mean, when you start talking about real dollars, <laughs> that's where, you know, put your money where your mouth is. But I, I think that that's the way that I want us to look at it. I mean, yes, we have a rise in racist rhetoric. Yes, we have a rise in attack on different institutions and a concern that 
you know, as you raise that there's attacks on synagogues, there's attacks on HBCUs, there's attacks on black churches. We need to look at this very carefully as a society as we decide where we want to go. But that look is one that is immediate, but it has to be not just immediate. It has to be long and broad and deep and meaningful. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ben, yeah, just to kind of weigh in on that, I, I don't disagree with any of that, but I have to say that from the FBI's investigative perspective, you know, they see it a little bit differently, right? They are, uh, you know, from your own time working in government, the the idea of motive as you're conducting an investigation is a bit of a double-edged sword, right? You don't want to lock too firmly onto a preconceived idea of what your target might be trying to say or what his intentions might be because you want to keep yourself open to every possibility. But at the same time, you know, you have 17 institutions, they're all HBCUs. So, you know, if you're not making some evidence-based assumptions here to help you direct your investigative efforts, you're really wasting your time. Um, So yes, is there historically, if you look back over offenders who are kind of serial bomb threat offenders, they are typically trying to accomplish some kind of messaging. Maybe it's a political statement. Maybe it's a, you know, just a, a racist, hateful act targeting a particular group. But here we have, you know, the Bureau has already said they're investigating this as a hate crime. So that alone shows you that they believe or they have some some reason to believe that they think there is a, you know, a discriminatory uh, intent behind these things, which makes a, a lot of obvious sense. Right. So I'm going to try to resolve uh, the hypothesis difference here and just say that Yasmin is an ACLU lawyer and a former public defender, and Andy McCabe is a former FBI deputy director, and we are going to always have a difference about what you can, just the, the nature of your careers will lead you to different assumptions about what your investigative hypothesis as to motive uh, is going to look like. Is that fair by both of you? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think it's fair. That's fair. I'm I'm going to inject my own uh, assumption here, which is bomb threats are, I'm probably closer to Andy on this. I think when somebody calls in 17 bomb threats to HBCUs, you can assume that race is a a major motivating factor. But I also 
agree that you could also be dealing with a troublemaking teenager and you don't want to make too firm assumptions about who you're dealing with, whether there are real bombs, whether this is an effort to be in the news or whether it's primarily an effort to intimidate people based on race. I tend, I obviously tend to favor that as the explanation just because, you know, of the target selection. But I'm curious, Andy, when you have a, you know, it's a crime that so many people are actually capable of having committed, unlike unlike a situation where a bomb actually goes off, where you need a certain expertise to have have constructed the bomb. You need information. You need to have traveled to the location, right? You have so much more information to work with. Here, you could be dealing with anybody in the United States, and all you have is the communications and you know your investigative assessment about what the motive is likely to be you know how do you make assumptions about your investigative hypothesis about things like motive and seriousness of the threat given that the action itself is both proximate to extreme violence but also something that just about anybody in the world could could have done yeah, proximate to extreme violence and extreme annoyance, right? I mean, Cotter, who was one of the people arrested for the threats in 2017 to to Jewish community centers, was uh, himself uh, a young, I think, late teens, uh, Jewish-Israeli-American l- located in Israel. And so, again, it gets to that. It, so clearly, was he targeting Jewish targets? Absolutely, he was. But so you can make some good investigative assumptions based on what you know, right? How, which, who are your your victims? Um, where are they located physically? How are they getting these threats? Uh, but then making that jump to like why this individual or this group of people is doing this is can sometimes be a, a much longer leap. So I, you know, I, you really, as I said earlier, you, you have no choice from the law enforcement side but to take each one of these things as a potentially devastating, violent event. That's the first one and also the, you know, 999th one. And if you've excluded the first 16, if you said the first 16, we know that the threat came from nowhere near here. There's no sign of anything in the mail. The 17th, can you operate on the assumption that this is probably just a threat, not a live bomb? Or do you just have to always start with, you know, it doesn't matter if it's 17 or 1700, every bomb threat has to be considered a bomb. Every single one of them has to be. Now, that's not to say that you wouldn't bring your the sum total of your investigative knowledge to the analysis of those later threats, you would, right? So if you got one that was identical to the other 500 and you've, you determined that all those came from someplace overseas who was, you know, not, was not a serious threat, you'd, you would first look to see if you could fit it in that same box. Was it connected in terms of location or victim victimology or uh, where it was coming from or how it was communicated? But you still have to run down all of those traps. Like no one wants to let the real one get through. And 
let's remember that complicating this, as soon as you have one kind of notorious publicized bomb threat subject, you frequently then get copycats or other people who try to kind of capitalize on the publicity and what's going on. And you really have no idea whether or not those are just simply copycats who are trying to jump in, or maybe it's somebody who's already planning on doing something and is going to try to hide a real attack in the smoke and haze of these fake bomb threats. Um, I think, in fact, in 2017, there was a second person arrested in that case who uh, phoned in some bomb threats, a small number. It was had to do with like a romantic relationship in a way of like getting back at an ex-girlfriend or an ex-wife or something like that. And this individual had kind of seen what was happening in the press and so phoned in a threat thinking he could kind of sneak this one in under, it would be considered part of that uh, other activity. So it's not nearly as simple as showing up at the office every day and looking at the threat that came in the night before and working that thing in the abstract or the uh, you know individual sense. So Yasmin, I'm 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 interested in your the the attorney general in in the same speech that he talked about threats talked about a kind of web of of investigative and law enforcement priorities for the Justice Department, which loosely described is January 6th accountability prosecutions, protecting voting rights and preventing and prosecuting threat cases. And he sees this as as key key enforcement priorities to democracy protection. How how credible to you is that linkage? Is there a a strong conceptual linkage in your mind between enforcement of threats cases like this and, you know, the voting rights matters that are generally being dealt with in civil litigation and January 6 prosecutions or are some or all of these just in different worlds from one another? Oh, I think there's a common thread of civic participation the importance of protecting it, and, and that that in, in many ways underlies all of this. When we're looking at systemic disenfranchisement, if it be systemic dis- disenfranchisement from a lack of opportunity or from a threat of a voter suppression initiative, or it be some type of, of, of just the mere, the, the distraction from a rise in hate crimes, not just distraction, but the the harm and and frankly, distraction from the ability to go forth in one's life from the rise of, of hate crimes. I think there is a strong, a strong link to all of these things about really protecting our electorate and being able to have people live out their promises of the Constitution and participate in civically. And so I, I see that maybe maybe that link wasn't made as clearly, but from my vantage point. I think that that is an important role of government um, and an important matter right now, particularly right now, to ensure that people are, are, are safe, that they are able to engage in ways that are consistent with our Constitution and with our civil rights laws, and that they're able to engage in society as participants in our elections and in their taking part in their civic duties in being able to acquire fair and just housing to not be under the thumb of some, you know, of, of a long-standing 
pernicious criminal legal system. I think all of these things are very much connected with that theme in mind of leveling playing fields to enable everyone to participate as members of this country and and really live up to our civic responsibilities. So, Andy, I want to go back to Yasmin's earlier point about tensions between the Bureau, between law enforcement more generally, the Bureau in particular, and uh, communities of color. You know, one of the things that the Bureau has gotten a fair bit of criticism for, including from me uh, in the year since January 6th, is that, you know, aside from this Norfolk memo and aside from, you know, and notwithstanding uh, Director Ray's insistence that there were, you know, a million open investigations, the FBI did seem to be caught flat-footed in the run-up to January 6th with, with respect to information that was widely available to the general public that a large number of people were planning to storm the Capitol. And some of us have hypothesized that, hey, you know, this is an organization principally composed, not exclusively by any means, but uh, the dominant culture of the Bureau is conservative-ish white men, and they don't necessarily see threat in behavior that uh, emanates from people who are a lot like them. And I'm curious to what extent th- that is a factor that impinges on the Bureau's ability to handle situations like this with optimum effectiveness. I mean, you have a lot of field offices that are that don't look like HBCUs and, you know, a bunch of agents fan out to investigate something like this, are they going to take it seriously enough? Yeah, boy, (laughs) there's a lot of, there's a lot packed into that question, Ben. I'm sorry about that. And feel free to break out any part of it or, or focus on, you know, or debunk the premise of the question, if you like. Yeah, no, I, I, I do not intend to do that. So just a couple things. First of all, absolutely caught flat footed. There's no, there's no, there's not even a debate around that on January 6th. I mean, when your number one priority of your organization is to prevent an act of terrorism in the United States and January 6th happens on your watch, you failed. And I don't say that as like trying to throw a rock at the men and women of the FBI who I still care deeply about. Um, But you, you've got to have the honesty and the transparency to call it what it is. That was a massive miss. So the question from that is why? And I, for me, the most concerning thing about that issue is I think it raises some significant questions about what sort of preconceived perspectives, biases, what have you, the, that the Bureau brought into their analysis before January 6th. Like they heard, I'm sure, and were aware of all the same open source traffic, social media traffic that everyone else was aware of. Question is, what did they think about it? And why did they dismiss it as something that was not likely to pose a legitimate threat to the Capitol? Um, Why didn't they take it more seriously? You know, one possibility is that the Bureau's domestic terrorism 
program for at least the last couple of decades. I can't say forever. Obviously, there's been a lot of controversy historically about the way the Bureau has approached that mission. But for the last decade or two, has been focused on the kind of, I'll call them traditional domestic extremist groups, right? So uh, Klan, sovereign citizens, um, militia members, Antifa, for that matter. Like it's not specifically, it's more right than left, but it's both both right and left. And so it's possible that when they looked out at the intelligence they had and the tips they had in the lead up to January 6th, as they were hopefully performing some sort of threat assessment, think, thinking, thinking, you know, is there a, a, legitimate, a legitimate threat of violence in D.C. on this day? If that's what they were looking for, activity among those groups, it would maybe explain why they didn't they didn't they didn't see any, you know, they didn't see a lot of clan activity. They didn't know a lot of subjects that were traveling, whatever. But what we now know from January 6th, from some of the research that's been done at places like the University of Chicago and other places, if you look at the data of the people who've been arrested for engaging in criminal activity, over 700 of them by January 6th of this year, there's some really interesting data points. Those people are overwhelmingly male and overwhelmingly white, that you would expect, but they are different in many ways from the traditional domestic extremists. They are older. They are better employed. They are better educated. They are often business owners, often people in white collar positions. They are overwhelmingly Republican or supporters of Donald Trump. They are in a slim majority from counties that were won by Joe Biden in the 2020 election. They are in like suburban counties, not so much like, you know, deep red states, but really from all over the country. And I think that it is my theory, not based on any anything I know from what's happening in the Bureau, that that's not who the Bureau was looking for in the run-up to January 6th. Now, that gets to your suggestion, right? Is it because that group of people looks a lot like the majority of the FBI? Maybe. And if that's the case, that's a really damaging thing. I don't know. I don't know that it is, uh, but that's something that the Bureau, I think, should be looking at. Bottom line is they weren't looking in the right place and they were presumably getting intelligence from sources and from open source materials and didn't think of those people as presenting a legitimate threat. And we now know that that's where the threat came from. I've been brutalized on, the, on Twitter and online and in right-wing media over saying, like, I'm advocating that all Republicans should be subjects of surveillance and arrested or something. That is, of course, not the case. I'm not suggesting that. I'm simply saying the, it may be time for the FBI to recalibrate how they think about where the real threat comes from on the domestic extremist side in this country. So does that give you confidence about this, or does it give, make you worry about this investigation? It, it doesn't really make me worry. Well, it doesn't make me worry about this investigation because I have no doubt that the FBI is going to dive on these bomb threats in the way they did for the Jewish community, in the way they do routinely for, these, for the Muslim community. So I don't worry about that. The, the thing we discussed at the top of the hour about is the relationship between the FBI and these HBCUs and the black community strong enough 
to actually really power those investigations? That's another question entirely. And that's unfortunately a very individual uh, thing. You know, it comes down to like, how good is your SAC? How good is your outreach? How good is your kind of knowledge about your community and your how much effort are you putting into building those relationships? So that that can be a source of concern. But I'm not worried that the FBI would not take this seriously. I, I think they would. It's a very, a very specific and different thing. You know, when I'm when we're talking about this and one of the things that that is of interest to me is is back to that question about encouraging and, and, and bettering the relationships. And I think that there's a real opportunity right now when we're talking about, you know, what can federal law enforcement do as it polices itself or as it reckons with itself on how why historically there's been those problems, there's a real opportunity for federal law enforcement to lead the way on certain policies and procedures that could be modeling for local law enforcement and could make a big difference. So, you know, if the FBI is wondering why, you know, there has not, not wondering why, but seeking to figure out ways that it could heal the relationship and strengthen the relationship with the black community, the FBI can internally change its own use of force policy in ways that we've been asking local law enforcement to to do and asking states and municipalities to take the lead on. Federal law enforcement can do that itself. Federal law enforcement can do symbolic acts such as, you know, saying, for example, we're really interested in exploring alternatives there, there are to seeking to, you know, for example, lock up folks who are mentally ill. Federal law enforcement has the intersection with mental illness with people who are at the other um, end of that investigatory arm all the time. So I just think that when we're in, and, and I'm not saying that that's the, the cure all, but it's a start, you know, looking at some of these policies, these federal law enforcement policies might be a way when we're having these conversations for them to say, how do we really meaningfully build these these bonds and serve this community which has also been plagued by us and being really honest in 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 that analysis hey i agree with you and i think that federal law enforcement and specifically the fbi carries a burden of being and a totally reasonable burden to be a leader in law enforcement technology practice policy uh, and specifically, the director of the FBI is the spokesman for that cutting edge, forward leaning element of the law enforcement community. Um, and so I, th- I think that you're, you're right. I think the FBI and the rest of the federal law enforcement community should be engaged in those conversations and trying to set an example for how to do things better. That's not to say that like it, it, there is, as you know, Yasmin, it's very different, the federal law enforcement community from the state and locals. They, the state and locals are under pressures and dealing with things that you really have the luxury of not having to deal with at the federal level. So there, there are some, it's not a perfect overlay, but nevertheless, we have the time, we have the resources, we have the megaphone to kind of be a champion for doing it better. My concern is you've heard nothing from specifically the FBI or the rest of the federal law enforcement community about that, with the exception of some comments recently by DOJ, the Attorney General and the, and the Deputy Attorney General. I think it's really been kind of crickets since, certainly since January 6th, on the January 6th issue and on these other more 
broad issues in law enforcement and policing. You really heard very little, which concerns me. Well, and what concern what what concerns me also is I think we've talked about some kinds of, you know, waves of of attention that come to issues during certain crises. But sustaining our interest beyond the crises is where we're going to have the change that we want. And right now, we're having this focus on the HBCUs, and then we're also having a conversation around the country about a narrative of, and not just a narrative, a reality in many places of an increase in crime, of all kinds of crime. And so does that mean that we abandon our efforts to engage in a robust reimagination of, of public safety? Or does it mean that we just go right back to the old, well, we just need to, you know, have more militarized weaponry and more police officers on the street and more joint FBI task forces that are, you know, out targeting certain types of of activity. This is the time for us to really hold tight and be sustained in our, in our strategy to, to have a true forward thinking reimagination. I, I totally agree. I think the answer to your question is no. There's no reason we can't walk and chew gum at the same time. There's no reason we can't think about, hold both of those issues, those problems in our head at the same time. We've got a history of just overreactions, in my opinion, right? In the 90s, the crime rate's out of control, drug trafficking is out of control. So we bring in just draconian sentencing. We militarize the police. We go completely in one direction. I think a lot of people, myself included, are concerned that some of the response to the very legitimate interest in social justice and criminal justice reform maybe started going in, in, a, in a direction that caused some of that could have contributed to some of this recent rise in crime. I don't know that that's the case, but it's something that needs to be looked at. But either way, like saying you're, we're going to be tougher on people who are carrying guns illegally in our cities and contributing to this massive increase in gun crimes does not mean that we should start bringing back mandatory pretrial detention for people busted with marijuana. I mean, like, we've got to be able to see, like, what's really hurting us and what's really hurting our communities and and make those kind of distinctions. We are going to leave it there. Yasmin Cater, Andy McCabe, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Yasmin. This has been a real pleasure uh, getting to meet you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to support the Lawfare Podcast, and there's a way you can do it without violating any federal law. You can become a material supporter of Lawfare. You can do that at our Patreon page. Get rid of the pesky ads along the way. Patreon.com slash Lawfare. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by the great Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by the superlative Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.